Well, hey, everyone. It is a pleasure to be uh, with you studying God's Word. Uh, if you have a Bible, let's open it up to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to be in that chapter of Scripture as we dive into God's Word today. Um, we're going to be talking about some important topics. We're talking about um, marriage. We're going to be talking about divorce, uh, singleness, wealth, a myriad of issues. Um, and I think it's interesting, right, because the culture and society has a perspective on all of these topics that we're going to be mentioning and talking through in Matthew chapter 19. But what I love about God's word, what I love about Jesus, right, is that he silences really all of those voices that can seem burdensome to a lot of us. They're certainly burdensome to me when you hear so many voices and so many perspectives on these issues. And he's clear to the point and he gets us back to the truth of God's word. So we're going to get some clarity on certain issues. We're going to get peace about important topics. So with that, let's go ahead and dive into our lesson today. And we're going to be in Matthew 19 in two divisions. The first division is going to be Matthew chapter 19 verses 1 through 15. We're going to be talking about countercultural choices. And then Matthew chapter 19 verses 16 through 30, we're going to be talking about countercultural surrender. So with that, let me pray for us and then we'll dive in to our first division here. Lord God, um, I don't know the kind of week that brings us to today as we're listening or watching this lecture, uh, but God, I just pray that you would give us a clear mind and heart for what you have for us in your word. May my words not be from me, but from you ultimately, Lord, and may you prepare our hearts for what your spirit is teaching us in this chapter. Thank you, God, for preserving the words of Matthew 19, and we trust that you will accomplish the good work in our hearts. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Awesome. So division chapter one, we're talking about, uh, excuse me, division one, we're talking about countercultural choices in Matthew 19 verses one through 15. So if you remember, if you've been reading through Matthew with us, Matthew chapter 18 concluded on the topic of forgiveness with the parable of the unmerciful servant. And the opening verses of Matthew 19 show Jesus leaving Galilee uh, into Judea on the other side of the Jordan where continual healings are taking place. Um, huge crowds of people are still following Jesus. So his earthly ministry is still taking place. And then, of course, who does he run into in the opening verses of Matthew 19? But his good pals, his good old friends, the Pharisees. And verse 3 is very clear as to why the Pharisees are showing up here and meeting with Jesus. It's to test Jesus with a question. And the Pharisees were there um, to test Jesus on a controversial topic that was controversial then. It's even controversial now, and that is on the topic and question of divorce. So their question, the Pharisees, right, is to the point, it's simple. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? That's their question that they're posing to Jesus. But remember, it's the Pharisees, and the Pharisees always have ulterior motives. So when they try to test Jesus with this question, right, they're trying to get him to contradict Scripture in any way, right? They're trying to catch Jesus in a a catch-22 where he's going to contradict scripture and they can point out that he's saying something wrong and he's not who he says he is. But they are forgetting continually that they are dealing with the one who actually wrote the scriptures, right? So Jesus has a response because he knows the scriptures. He's the one who inspired him. He's there, right? He knows the scriptures inside and out. And what we see in Jesus's response to that question of can a man divorce his wife for any reason, Jesus gets back to the basics, He goes back to the literal beginning, right? He doesn't go through platitudes or philosophies or random conversations on the topic or nuances. He gets back to the very basis of marriage. And he goes back to Genesis chapter 2, 
right? So God in Genesis chapter one creates mankind in his image. In Genesis chapter two, we see the foundation of marriage being set when God creates man and woman to be united as one. So Jesus explains here that the purpose of marriage at the beginning of creation was so that man and woman could unite and glorify God. It is a high calling. It's a beautiful vocation. It's a relationship that God blessed at the beginning of time. For the believer, our understanding of marriage is further expanded as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5 that actually marriage is a demonstration of the gospel as Christ gave up his uh, life for the church and gives his love to the church. So marriage is a demonstration of that. Marriage is sacrifice. Marriage is surrender. It's sacrificial love. And it is a relationship that is all for God's glory. Um. And immediately, right, Jesus does not stoop down to the level of the Pharisees' question, which is superficial. Uh, the Pharisees always asked superficial questions because they were concerned with obedience to the law. Obedience to the law for them meant life. It meant salvation, right? Following a list of rules, that was what they were about. But Jesus was not superficial. Jesus knew that the core issue of humanity was not ultimately our outward behavior first, but rather starting with the matters of the heart. It's the state of our hearts, as he talked about and as we studied a few weeks ago in Matthew chapter 15. So it's for that reason that Jesus goes back to the purpose behind marriage, why God created it, why he established it. But then the, th- uh, the Pharisees throw back another question to Jesus. They say, so then why did Moses command divorce? Now, Jesus' response in verse 8 is important because he's, still, he's further correcting the Pharisees, right? The, Jesus is saying, eh, that's not exactly correct. Moses did not command divorce. Moses didn't just say, hey, start divorcing. It's okay in the eyes of God. He didn't command it. He permitted it. That's very different. He permitted it. And why did Moses permit it? Because Jesus says, because of the hardness of man's hearts. So Jesus here is pointing out, we're going to get, we're going to dive deeper into this in a little bit, but Jesus is pointing out, right, that in this sinful and broken world, some relationships will tragically end and they end because we are sinful human beings and we are broken and that sin, and we're going to talk about this in a second, but sin has an effect on all of us and it, it affects the way we relate to others. It's important to note here, too, that Jesus says that divorce is not always necessarily a sin, right? There's some exceptions that he brings up in terms of adultery and sexual immorality. So I want to point that out, too. But let's dive deeper, right? Jesus says divorce was permitted because of the hardness of our hearts. What is Jesus getting at here? What is he referring to? Well, Jesus mentioned earlier, right, about Genesis. When God creates mankind in his image, we see Genesis 2.24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, when we see, right, this is a relationship, a marriage relationship that glorifies God. It's a beautiful relationship. Okay, we look around us today and we, it doesn't take long for us to realize that marriage for so many does not look like the beautiful picture that Jesus lays out in these verses that God initially intended in Genesis 2. So what happened after Genesis 2.24? Well, Genesis 3 happened. And what's recorded in Genesis chapter 3? The fall of mankind when sin enters the world. See, sin distorts and affects every area of our lives. Our relationships, our emotions, our actions, our decisions, everything. And it affects the holiest of unions, which is marriage. And sin, which causes the brokenness that we see all around us, um, 
And maybe it's even affected you. Maybe you have experienced divorce firsthand. Maybe you are coming from a family of divorce where your parents were divorced or um, you know, maybe you had a f- close friend or some relatives, whatever that looks like. Maybe you've been personally affected by divorce in some way. And I just want to take a quick second, right? Um, for those of us maybe who have experienced firsthand what divorce can be like, and we just have to acknowledge divorce is painful. Divorce is an end of something. It's an end of a relationship. It's devastating. It has devastating consequences. But when we recognize that, I think I hope you also know and I hope you hear that as you've been reading Matthew, you see the true heart of Jesus in this. What is the true heart of Jesus? Well, Jesus is compassionate. He's full of mercy. I think of Psalm 34. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those that are crushed in spirit. I think of Matthew chapter 11, which we studied last semester. Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Nowhere in this passage does it say that anyone who has been affected by divorce or have experienced divorce firsthand are not welcome or cast out. No, we don't hear any of that. We have to know that Jesus' heart is just the opposite, and we have to realize that even if we haven't experienced divorce, all of us in some way have experienced relational brokenness in one way or another. We all have. And divorce is different, but Jesus doesn't cast out anyone who's been divorced, who has experienced divorce. I just hope you see the true heart and compassion of Jesus because that is the reality. That is the truth. He reaches out to the broken. He reaches out to those who have experienced relational brokenness. Please see that because that is the reality. That is the truth. That is Jesus' heart for you. Now, as Jesus touches on these subjects, divorce and marriage, Jesus also makes a significant statement on singleness. And I, it comes after what I thought was a comical statement in verse 10, right? When, when Jesus is really talking about the importance of marriage and exalting its reality and reminding everybody that this is a holy union, um, the disciples are like, well, if that's the case for marriage, um, why would anybody get married, right? It's better not to marry. You know, and I know it wasn't intended to be funny, but I thought it was funny, I have to confess. Some of the leaders in our leadership circle thought it was funny too, so I wasn't alone. Um, but Jesus then, when he hears that question, that statement from the disciple, transitions a little bit and addresses this issue of singleness. And it's, again, something totally different than what the culture tells us, maybe even sometimes what church culture can tell us. But Jesus replies, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept this. All right, what's happening here? What is Jesus saying? Well, Jesus here, I think it's important to note here when we talk about this issue of singleness, what Jesus does not say. Right? Jesus does not say that marriage is a requirement for a God-glorifying, satisfying life. doesn't say that. Jesus does not say that marriage is the only way for someone to find happiness. And it might feel that way when we watch movies or we listen to just the talk about marriage. You think, oh my gosh, if I'm, if I'm single, I might be missing out on God's blessings. It's not what Jesus addresses here at all. He doesn't say that at all here. Now, this is, of course, not to say that marriage is not a beautiful gift from God. It is. It's a beautiful gift. It's a a holy relationship. 
It is a glorious demonstration of God's sacrificial love. But it is not the only way to glorify God, and it is not the ultimate God-glorifying life. It's not the only way to live. And Jesus doesn't say any of the other common platitudes about marriage or singleness that we often hear in the culture or even in church talk. He doesn't acknowledge singleness as this weird stage of life or that singles are, single people are somehow need to be pitied. He doesn't say that. What he says instead is that singleness can be a way to glorify God. Some may even prefer singleness for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And I might say here that your notes um, cover this. The hort, when Jesus mentions right about eunuchs, your notes describe what a eunuch is in the hort historical context. So for the sake of this uh, lecture and for the sake of time, I'm not going to get into that. But your notes do cover that. But anyways, Jesus doesn't say any of those things about marriage. And he, he says that singleness is just a way of life that can glorify God. And I find this totally refreshing. When I read this this past week, I found it totally refreshing compared to what we often hear about singleness. And I am, I'm, I will confess, I'm, I'm, I'm single as well. I go through this struggle of wanting to be content in my singleness. And some days I feel 100% content. Like I'll, I feel fine in being single. Then the next day I will feel totally alone. And I will feel overwhelmed by my singleness and I'll feel sad and I'll start to compare myself and all of that. I mean, it's an emotional roller coaster. Maybe you relate to me in that way where I just ricochet from feeling content and totally feeling out of place and allowing my emotions to burden me. Well, Jesus, as he often does, lifts the burden here. And he declares that the single person, again, is not someone that should, we should pity not someone that who is missing out on the blessings of life. But he is saying that the person who is single has a distinct opportunity to glorify God in the kingdom of heaven. So what are the bottom lines that Jesus is saying for both marriage and for singleness? How, um, you know, what, what is... What is the bottom line here? What is our creator saying about marriage and singleness? And I'll, I'll put this... Um, caveat here. I don't know what God's purpose is for your life, but I do know maybe what God is saying to us, right? When we view the circumstances of our life, marriage, right? Is Jesus is saying that marriage is a beautiful depiction that was created by God at the beginning to glorify God. Jesus is saying in, in terms of singleness, that it is a gift which can be used to glorify God. It all depends on our approach. It all depends on how we view life. And like I said, I don't know where you are in life. I don't know what God's purpose is for your life. I don't know whether it's singleness or marriage. Maybe you're already married. Maybe you're single and in search of a relationship. Whatever it is, when we approach life through God's perspective with the lens and desire of wanting to bring him glory, we will experience his satisfaction and contentment regardless of the path that he has set before us. We find the life that we are looking for, which is ultimately a life that glorifies God, because ultimately that's the only life that can satisfy when we place him as the foundation and cornerstone of our daily living. Now we're going to conclude with more of this thought towards the end, but I just want us to think about that, right? Again, I don't know what God's purpose is for your life, but it isn't really about that here. It's about how we approach life and how we 
look at life through the lens of our creator. How do we get there, though, right? Because that's easier said than done. And I think verses 13 through 15, as we conclude this first division here, give us a little bit of insight into that. So verse, uh, verses 13 through 15, right? Little children are brought to Jesus and the disciples are being curmudgeons and they're trying to shoo the children away, right? They don't want the children to come. But Jesus insists. And I love that, right, about Jesus. He doesn't turn anyone away. His compassionate heart is open to everyone. And instead of turning people away, Jesus says in verse 14, let the little children come to me and don't hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Now, this is similar, I think, to chapter 18. And by the way, your notes also have another spiritual application here where we can think of the little children as the little ones that God uses to bring to us so that we can show his compassionate heart to. Little ones being, you know, those that maybe have been oppressed or underprivileged or the world looks past them, maybe the lonely, the outcast, whatever that is, right? Christians as believers, we have a heart to reach out to the little ones in our world and to care for them and show Christ's compassion. Um, But here, in terms of, you know, thematically, I'm going to focus on what this means when we approach life in the perspective of our, our creator, when we view things through his perspective. All right, so back to verses 13 through 15, right? When we think of what it means that the little children, right? Let the little children come to me for heaven belongs to such as these. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When we think about little children, what personal personal qualities, right, come up? What attributes come up when we think of little children, right? In the purest form, right? Do we think of them as maybe trusting, willing to trust, joyful, that sense of innocence? When we look at our own hearts, right? Maybe the way that we are living through our current life circumstances, whatever that might be, right? Whether it's singleness or marriage, maybe we've gone through periods of emotional brokenness or relational brokenness. Do we approach life with that perspective, right? Trusting Jesus, joyful in the life that Jesus has set before us. I'll be honest, it's a hard no for me most days. I don't necessarily wake up every day and say, this is a day where I can trust you, Jesus. I, I, I don't because I'm focused on my circumstances first and foremost. But this applies, this perspective applies to whatever situation we are going through right now. I mean, do we view our current situation, our current life stage with the perspective that says, Jesus, look, I don't understand. I don't understand my life. We rarely understand what's happening in our life. But you know what, Lord, I trust you. Because what you have prepared for my life is far better, far more satisfying than anything this world can offer. Do we trust what Jesus has to say on matters of life, on matters of divorce, marriage, singleness? Do we trust what Jesus has planned for our personal lives, whatever that might be? And that's going to lead to our first principle here, that Jesus calls us to view life with his perspective in accordance with his good and perfect will. Jesus calls us to view life with his perspective in accordance with his good and perfect will. Again, I'll mention straight away, right, that the, anything that I just mentioned, right, viewing life through God's perspective is not automatic for us, and it's not easy, right? Jesus said our hearts are hard. We focus often on the world around us and our circumstances rather than on Christ. That's why we need to run to the gospel daily. We need the Holy Spirit, right, to adjust our perspectives and to change our heart. The fact of the matter is, I truly believe, right, that God desires his children to be content, to be fulfilled. Here's the difference. He wants us to be content. He wants us to be fulfilled. He wants us to be satisfied in him. 
He wants us to be satisfied in him alone, regardless of what we're living through. He wants us to see that his will for us and for the world is good and perfect because he is good and perfect. That's a great transition for our second division because we're going to dive into that deeper as we head into countercultural surrender, which is from Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. This is, of course, the story of the rich young man. So these opening verses here in, in Matthew 19, we are introduced to the rich young man. And the rich young man asked Jesus a simple question. Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus, in his, in his response, in his wisdom, and often what he does, right, rhetorically, he answers a question with a question. And he asks, why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, if you want eternal life, um, obey the commandments. And the rich young man presses Jesus by asking which commandments. And Jesus responds by listing five of them. And they're all relational. Basically, right, Jesus is saying, you got to be perfect because my father is perfect. And this isn't to say that Jesus is saying, right, that you need good works to enter heaven or that you need to obey the commandments to enter heaven. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Um, Jesus, we've seen this, him do it before, but Jesus, for the reader, for us, and for the rich young man, is setting up a situation here where he can ultimately realize that, wow, I don't have a leg to stand on when it comes to um, eternal life. There's nothing I can inherently do to achieve eternal life. I need Jesus. That's where, that's where Jesus is trying to get this rich young man to. He's trying to get all of us right to this point where we surrender, we give up, and we say, okay, salvation can't be found in me. It's only in Jesus. Now, um, the man, when he hears this, right, the rich young man, um, the Bible describes him as having great wealth, and he hears this, and he says, right, he insists, look, I've kept all the commandments, Jesus. What else can I do? Right, he insists that he's lacking something else. And I think that's very interesting, right? Because according to this man, right, he's wealthy, he's rich, he's young, He's kept all the commandments, but he still knows something is missing. I think that's very fascinating. And Jesus responds in verse 21. If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Right? Remember, Jesus is getting the rich young man to get to the point where he says, oh my gosh, Jesus, I can't do this on my own. And then Jesus would have said, great, that's exactly what I'm getting you to see. You can't do it. You can't do it. You need me. Let me be that salvation for you. That's what Jesus is saying there. That's what he wants the rich young man to get to. But the rich young man, we don't see a conversion here take place. We don't really know what happens to the rich young man after this. All we know is that he, when he hears what Jesus has to say, he leaves in sadness. And the disciples uh, ask a very important question here because they hear this interaction and they say, Jesus, if that's the case, who can be saved? It's a great question. But of course, Jesus, when he hears what the disciples ask, answers with, another, with, a, with really the gospel. And Jesus says, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are gospel, are, are possible, excuse me. So with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And that is the crux of the gospel. Mankind is hopelessly bankrupt before a holy and perfect God. 
And the way to salvation is moral perfection because God is holy, because God is perfect, of which that is totally impossible for every single one of us when we are honest. But in the midst of an impossible situation, God makes a way. God makes the way through his son. And we're going to read about that towards the end of our BSF year when we read about Jesus going to the cross and rising again to defeat sin and death once and for all. So Jesus responds with the gospel, right? We need God. We need Jesus to be saved. But Peter, is, who is so diligent in asking follow-up questions, right, in verse 27, uh, says, you know, makes a statement where he says, we have left everything to follow you. What then will, be, will there be for us? Now, um, Jesus responds here saying that in his second coming, when things are renewed, right, the disciples are going to be exalted. They're going to have a position in the kingdom of heaven, Uh, Verse 29, actually, uh, Jesus says some puzzling words here, right? Where he says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life, right? He's basically saying, you are going to inherit far more than you will ever lose on this side of heaven for my sake. And then he concludes with those amazing, with that amazing verse in verse 30, where he says, but many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. All right. So what is Jesus saying here? Is he saying that we need to abandon our homes and our families right now to follow him? (laughs) Well, not exactly, but Jesus is indicating something deeper here, right? Jesus is indicating, he's saying anything in this life, whether it's the good gifts that God gives us, this includes our families, our relationships, our homes, maybe even wealth, career, material possessions. All of that is temporary. All of that is not meant to be ultimate. All of that will eventually fade away. And it's a morbid thought, but it's true. Everything on this side of eternity changes at some point. Relationships change, careers change, material possessions fade away. And if we think about our own mortality, all of us have an end date in this life. It's morbid to think about, but that's true. That's reality. And none of those things that I just mentioned, and many of those are good things, right? These are good things, good gifts that God has given us, family, career, right? Those are good things. But none of that was meant to be our ultimate. And sometimes in this life, tragedy strikes, and sometimes those things are taken from us tragically. None of those are forever. And no earthly good, no matter how great it is, no matter how much of a blessing it is, all of it pales in comparison to the greatness of who God is, the magnificence of his son, and the true salvation that he provides, right? Because God alone is eternal. God alone is the one who can give us the purpose and reason for our existence. He alone can provide the salvation we so desperately need from the sin that condemns. Jesus is our ultimate And he is over any earthly good or blessing we've received on this earth. And anything that we lose on this side of heaven, right? Because this earth, this fallen earth, I don't know if you've noticed, but it's a tragic place to live, right? Nothing is certain on this side of heaven. But Jesus promises, he says, look, you follow me. And whatever you lose here on earth, you're going to gain in heaven 10,000 fold because you're going to have me in eternity, Our ultimate reason for living is Christ. It's to bring him glory. And that leads us to our final principle tonight. 
which is that Jesus calls us to surrender and to faithfully rest in the security and joy that he provides. Jesus calls us to surrender and to faithfully rest in the security and joy that he provides. So as we conclude today, uh, I've been thinking about a lot about that rich young man um, and thinking about how similar we are in some ways. Now, uh, I will have to confess, I wish I was similar in more ways than one in terms of like his wealth. <laughs> I, wish I, was, I wish that was a similar quality that we shared. We do not share that quality. I do not have great wealth, but I do think we have some similarities in terms of attitude and how we you know, our perspective and how we approach certain things. And maybe you identified with the rich young man in some ways too. But right, if we think about the rich young man, we think about who he is, right? The Bible describes him as having a man who has great wealth. He's living comfortably, obviously, right? He's quite secure in the earthly sense. He certainly is a moral person to some regard because he's thinking about obeying the commandments, right? He's thinking about living a righteous life. He's got his whole life ahead of him. He's a young guy. And, um, you know, if the world was to look at that person, we would look at that person and say, man, this guy's got it together. This guy's living the good life. He's set. He's good to go. And with all of that wealth, all of that security, he exposes his insecurity when he comes to Jesus. Because if he didn't think he needed anything else, he wouldn't have come to Jesus in the first place. But he knows deep down he's missing something He's missing something because bottom line, all of those things I just mentioned, those good works, his wealth, his earthly security, even his own life, none of that could really save him ultimately. None of them could answer the important questions. All of that on this side of eternity is a house of cards, right? I mentioned earlier, everything fades away eventually because there's only one eternal and that eternal is God. And by the way, our good works, any of the earthly blessings, any of the earthly securities that we have, none of that addresses the real heart issue that we struggle with, which is sin. Only Jesus uh, tackles that issue. All right, so pertinent question, it's going to be the same question as we wrap up. Same question for the believer and for those who maybe would call themselves followers of Christ. and And the same question for maybe those who are not followers of Christ, maybe you'd consider yourself you know, a skeptic exploring Christianity. Hey, we're happy you're listening to this, and I, I pray that God is moving in your heart right now as you listen to this. But it's going to be two groups of people, but the same question. And the same, the same question that I have for both groups is this. Um, we'll start with the believer, right? Because there's some different context to this. Where do you find your salvation? It's going to be the same question, but there's some nuances. So we'll, I'll, I'll dive a little deeper here. So for the believer, right? A pertinent question for those who who trust in Christ for salvation. Where do you find your salvation? Well, we should say Jesus, right? That's That's the answer we're looking for. But really, where do we find our salvation? Do we find our salvation in our obedience, our good works, our church attendance, our BSF attendance? How about do we find our salvation in the earthly material blessings that God gives us? relationships, family, our home. Those aren't bad things, but do we turn our careers, our families, our hobbies, whatever it is that gives us life into God's themselves? And I find myself doing that a lot. And you know, it's interesting. We don't, we don't consciously say to relationships or to 
homes or to material blessings, right? We don't go up to them and say, please save me. But in our actions and our thought patterns, we sure do say that, right? Right? Because we might look to relationships and we might say, please, please remove my insecurity, right? Take away my insecurity. That's an act of salvation. Or we might look at our careers and say, please give me significance, give me value. That's asking for salvation in a way. We turn to these things and we're looking for salvation. We have to realize, right, that Christ has already accomplished what we all so desperately need, which is salvation from sin, rescue from eternal damnation, and victory over death. He's accomplished that through his death and resurrection. This, by the way, is not to say that good works don't have a place in the life of a believer. In fact, your notes point out that the doctrine of this week of the Christian faith is that we have been saved for good works. But the thing is here, good works don't save. They are the evidence of a heart that has been transformed by the Holy Spirit through being saved uh, in Jesus, in Christ. Salvation begins and ends with Jesus. Are you turning to him for the life that you need? And now maybe for the one who wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian today, again, like I said, you might be a skeptic. You might be thinking about Christianity. You might be coming back for the first time in a long time. And I just say, we're happy that you're listening. We're happy that you're watching. But my question is the same, right? Where is your salvation found? Do you realize the Bible lays out that your greatest problem is not a relationship issue? It is not a career issue. It's not an education issue. It is sin. And it is sin that separates you from a holy God. Sin that will be judged. And his call is simple today. It is to believe on him who has paid the price for that sin at the cross so that you can have true, abundant, free, eternal life that Jesus offers when you repent in him and you trust in him for salvation. Do you want to know more about that? Oh, man, we'd love to tell you. You can shoot us an email. You can comment on our YouTube. Um, we'd love to get in touch with you some way, somehow, to tell you about the good news of Jesus. And we're happy that you're listening to this right now, but we want to share with you the life that you can find in Jesus Christ. All right, now we're officially wrapping up. I know I've said that three times, but this is it. We are actually wrapping up here. I have said this, and I said this before, right? But I I have no idea what God's will is for your life. If you are a single person, right, and you're looking for marriage, I'm one of those people, right? I mean, I... We desire to be in a relationship. We desire to be to, to raise our own families. I, I don't know what God's will and purpose is for your life. I want to say that all your dreams are going to come true. I just don't know that. And I don't know what you've been through. I don't know. Maybe you're married now. Maybe you've gone through circumstances of relational brokenness and tragedy. I don't know. But here's what I do know. We can trust Jesus for our lives because he is good, because he is perfect, because he knows what's best. And we can bring all of the questions that we have, we can bring all of us, all that we are to Jesus. We can even do that right now. As soon as we wrap up here, you can go to him in prayer right now. We can bring our sin. We can bring our burdens. We can bring our frustration and bitterness over the way our lives have turned out. We can bring our questions like the rich young man. We can bring all of that. And Jesus just asks like a little child, just believe in me, believe on me, surrender. 
Don't walk away like the rich young man, but embrace Christ. And when we do, we are going to discover that what Jesus offers is so much better, so much more real than anything that this world could ever offer. When we experience Christ, we will experience his goodness, his life, his mercy, his forgiveness, and you can experience it right now. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, we just, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have preserved these words from Matthew 19 in, um, for us today in 2022. God, I pray that whatever life circumstance we're in, we might be frustrated or bitter to the way life has turned out. God, we thank you and we trust that we serve a God who is bigger than our disappointments, bigger than our bitterness, bigger than the brokenness that we've experienced. Lord, the heart and compassion you have for your people is real. Jesus, I pray that we would all see that and that we would run to you rather than running to anybody or anything else. Jesus, make these words alive for our hearts this week. May we remember who you are and may we run to the Holy Spirit daily as you change our hearts and you change our perspectives on life. We trust, we surrender to you, Lord. It's in your son's great name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining me. Um, Take care, and we will see you next week for Matthew chapter 20. Thanks, and take care.